I was remembering today a three-week that I dedicated to this loving-kindness practice at Insight Meditation Society. And I was remembering very vividly about a week of that. I went through so much intensity and the main emotions or emotions that were coming up, fear, anger, rage. And I was like, gosh, <laughs> I don't know about this practice. <laughs> it's bringing up everything that, you know, is really difficult to be with. And yet, you know, I kept returning over and over and over again to just inclining the mind, opening the heart. And part of that time, I realized that even though I dedicated that practice period to this loving-kindness practice, to this heart practice, I had also been training so intensely in mindfulness, insight meditation, that I couldn't just do one practice or the other practice. I was doing both mindfulness and heartfulness. And I went to speak to a teacher there, and once it did finally open, you know, it, it does open. <laughs> it does it does change. Um, and I was talking to them, and they were like, did you get here from Meta? Did you just do Meta? This is where you got from Meta? And I'm like, huh, no, I was doing mindfulness and Meta. And she's like, hmm. And it kind of just made me think a minute you know, two or three or months or years I've been contemplating this. What is this interface of mindfulness practice and heartfulness practice? How do those work together? And in the Buddhist wisdom tradition, there's this beautiful image that I want to invoke here. And some of you are very familiar with the image and have even taught yourselves on this. And it's the two wings of the bird. So one wing is... Um, wisdom. One wing is, let's say, loving kindness, compassion. Sometimes we interchange those and they have distinct qualities and yet they do point to um, this ability that we have to meet our experience with warmth, gentleness, and then connect to the alleviation of whatever suffering. If we do, we want to alleviate that in some way that movement of compassion into action. So this two wings of the bird, if you sense into that image, you know, a bird has a trouble flying if it only has one wing. And flying. <laughs> As a kid, I used to want to fly. <laughs> I used to wish I could fly. It's a symbol of freedom. And in this context, I'll rein us in to think about freedom as inner freedom. This inner empowerment, this ability to choose, this ability to actually perhaps co-create our life with something bigger. It's not all up to us. It's not all up to 
else either. There's this middle dance that comes about and arises when we can really sense into those two wings into seeing very clearly what's happening with our mindfulness practice. And then, oh, wait, let's hold it. Let's embrace it. Let's, oh, alleviation, compassion, let's move. You know, let's act. So if we don't hold a both and here, I feel like in some ways our practice may be incomplete. So in this talk tonight, I want to zoom in. I'm going to zoom in a little bit to mindfulness practice, and I'll zoom in a little bit to heartfulness practice, and then we'll talk about these two and how they really do toggle back and forth. That's my experience of it. We toggle back and forth sometimes in how we use the skillful means and techniques offered through these practices. And part of my exploration on freedom started, I mean, it's been, you know, a couple of decades, I suppose now. But on a two-month retreat, I really went into this pretty deeply when I was studying with Jack Cornfield, and he gave me a wisdom in vocation. And concentration was pretty steady, and there was a foundation to start to be able to say, hmm, what do I want to know? What is there to know? What is there to see clearly? Yeah. A lot. <laughs> There's a lot to see. And I started working with this invocation, may a deep understanding of freedom arise. It's an intense invocation. So, you know, one of those things that comes with a little bit of a warning label, like once you start, <laughs> better finish. And it, it really sent me back into some cycles of what the Buddhists call samsara. <laughs> and you might actually feel this, like, you know, samsara, you know, we have these words in the Buddhist tradition, and it's like, you can sense into this in your own experience. I mean, how many of you have, like, sat with your proliferating thoughts over the past week, and they just circle, and they just circle, and they just circle, and you're like, I just want out of this. Yeah, that's samsara. <laughs> that's samsara. Over and over and over again. And the Buddhists really do point us to this like perspective of like, oh, wait, you can observe it. And if you observe it, then you're not it anymore. You're free from it. Yeah, so it can be that simple. So it sent me into these cycles. And oh, gosh, the contraction. And what I really started to zoom in on was this movement of mind clinging. It feels so terrible sometimes. And I wrote Jack this note, and I was like, does this ever end? <laughs> and he wrote me back, relax, and you will know. Relax and you will know. And that's the thing that I started to see is that if we could bring some sort, if I can bring some sort of relaxation to it, some sort of gentleness, some sort of caring to it, in that relaxation, there's that heartfulness. And oh, yeah, I can know. And what I saw was even the clinging arises and passes. 
Right. Even the clinging arises and passes. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It's just, it's clinging. It arises and passes. If I resist it and I mess with it, try to get out of it, like, it makes it worse. That's what the Buddhists call suffering. <laughs> yeah? So we have this ability through our mindfulness practice to start to look into the three characteristics. And I'll touch briefly on them right now because I feel like that's where mindfulness switches into insight. And suffering is what we start to see clearly. How if I could just be with the intensity of clinging without adding anything extra onto it, without spinning out, without making up a bunch of stories, coming right into this moment, didn't mean it wasn't painful, didn't mean that there wasn't some patterns of mind that I needed to see, or, but it arose and it passed. And I didn't need to add on top of it. Some suffering the Buddhist tradition points us to. We can't get out of it. Sickness, old age, death. Old age and death. So don't try. Don't try to get out of it. Sickness, old age and death. If we're lucky, we'll make it to old age. Yeah. And part of the bracing and the clinging, part of the other insight that comes with our practice is that everything is impermanent. And if we really brace and cling against it, then we're just back into the loop. <laughs> And so this is the way that we start to work with impermanence. And impermanence is like a bittersweet kind of, you'll sense into your own relationship with impermanence. In some moments, oh, thank gosh, that's not going to last, right? In some moments, oh, can I just stay here forever? I got here. This is a beautiful retreat center. I'm in bliss. This is great. I need to move here. <laughs> this is where it's at. I found where I'm supposed to be here. Yeah, it's impermanent though. And then your mind starts, oh no, I gotta go. And then, 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 then. but yeah, it's because we know, we know that we really can't hold on to it. And when we do, back to the loop. Chungram Trumpa, we've mentioned him several times. I feel like probably because we studied and worked at Naropa for so long, he like is just with us sometimes. He says, the bad news is you're falling through the air. Nothing to hang on to. No parachute. The good news is there's no ground. There's no. And then the other characteristic that sometimes, you know, is like such an interesting one to try to incline our hearts and minds to grasp, grasp, maybe that's the thing we can't grasp, it really, is no self. And, you know, I'll just offer you to sense into yourself as a process. You woke up this morning, you're going to go to bed tonight. There's a lot that happens in between and you show up different ways depending on what's happened. It's a process. It's a dance. It contracts. It expands. And if you grab a grab onto any part of that process, guess what? You're back in samsara.
So with our mindfulness practice, like it really is teaching us to come into this direct experience of being with whatever is happening as it's happening and sensing it. Analyo in the direct path to realization in the Satipatthana, he says, direct experience of the fact that everything changes if applied to all aspects of one's personality can powerfully alter the habit patterns of one's mind. So that's part of what we're doing with our mindfulness practices. We're altering the habit patterns of your mind. And some of your habit patterns, if you might have noticed that, you know, these thoughts. What's your relationship to thinking? I invite you to soften and to, to, uh, to love the cognitive mind. It's not its fault. It's out of control sometimes. We haven't learned to work with it very well. Most of us haven't. And it's the thoughts that sometimes, if you, it, it, you know, in our thinking process, when there's a lot of thoughts, we, we're separate. It, it really does feel like we're separate. We're isolated, these thinking. But not all thinking, right? So part of our practice is starting to use the practice to start to use our discernment. Like, what are these thoughts? Yeah? Not all thoughts are problematic. In A Body's Keeps the Score um, by Bessel Evander Kalk, he says, he's, he's going to, the first part of this quote talks about, um, he talks about his teacher. He says, Elvin Simrad, Bessel's great teacher, his teacher, taught us that most human suffering is related to love and loss, and that the job of therapists slash maybe mindfulness teachers is to help people acknowledge experience and bear the reality of life with all its pleasures and heartbreaks. The greatest sources of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves, he'd say, urging us to be honest with ourselves about every facet of our experience. He often said that people can never get better without knowing what they know and feeling what they feel. Mindfulness. Knowing what they know and feeling what they feel. I remember being surprised to hear this distinguished old Harvard professor confess how comforted he was to feel his wife's bum against him as he fell asleep at night. By disclosing such simple human needs in himself, he helped us recognize how basic they were to our lives. Failure to attend them results in a stunted existence, no matter how lofty our thoughts and worldly accomplishments. Healing, he told us, depends on experiential knowledge. You can fully, you can be fully in charge of your life only if you can acknowledge the reality of your body and all. Fully in charge of your life. Simple human needs. And sometimes we don't even know what they are. Sometimes, you know, Vince asks me, what do you need right now? I'm like, I don't know. Mindfulness, yeah. It supports us in learning what we need, who we are, what kind of habits are happening. 
what lies we're telling ourselves. Now, how do we figure that out? Hmm. If you try to figure it out with your thinking, you might have noticed you start to spin around back to the cycles. <laughs> I mean, at some point, it kind of gets hilarious, but sometimes when we're really in it, it's not funny at all. <laughs> so, thinking. Jack Cornfield in A Path with Heart. Actually, I think this is Wise Heart. He offers the 10th principle of Buddhist psychology. He said, thoughts are often one-sided and untrue. Learn to be mindful of thoughts instead of being lost in them. One-sided and untrue. So that's one pointer, you know, I'll offer you. Is if you find yourself, and we all do it, oh, I'm great. Oh, I'm not. I can do it. No, I can't, right? And you're swinging. Hmm. That can be a very um, important indicator that, Pause. Look at the trees. Take a moment. Often one-sided and untrue. But if you're not great and you're not not great, then who are you? Huh. Where does confidence come from? It starts to come from the two wings. I'll just offer you that. Jack Kornfield also says Buddhist psychology helps us work with thoughts in two important ways. First, he teaches us to acknowledge the content of our thoughts. Second, we learn the ability to disentangle them. So it's, a, it's another version of what I just said. And it's disentangling, and one way you do that, right, is just to notice. Once you notice, there's that space. You're disentangled so you can start to see more clearly with our mindfulness what is happening. So then what? As we start to see more clearly and incline to opening the heart, you might have noticed that some intense emotions might start to arise. And here we have these thoughts, I can't handle this or this is too much. And sometimes it might be true and sometimes not. So how do you figure that? Because it, your practice will get intense, you, you know. I'd like to see if you're able to show me whose practice has gotten intense over the past three Anybody's? Okay, a few people, yeah, all right. Okay. So one thing that Jack also offers, and I, and I just like his ability to weave in Buddhist psychology, the Buddhism with psychology, and that's why I'll reference him a lot with working with thoughts, because I feel like he really does offer us a... Uh, a brilliant roadmap to distinguishing different kinds of thinking. And part of what he says is like one of the tricks or one of the keys is to sense the vibration beneath the thinking. Sense the vibration beneath the thinking. So for me, it's like part of my process has been to learn intu intuition. A lot of the intu intuitive kind of knowing that happens for me happens through thinking. It's thought imprints. Some people see in visions. Some people see in thoughts. Some people are kinesthetic. They get it in their bodies. I get it with thoughts. And so when I was first started practicing, I heard, I don't know if people, I mean, some teachers will, you'll hear different things, but I heard and made up that, you know, thinking was a problem like a lot of people do. 
And so I started dismissing all the intuitive thoughts. All my inner guidance was just like, oh, thinking, thinking, thinking. Well, when I started to sense the vibration beneath the thinking, intuition, it, it's very different than thinking. So once we get a, a certain level of skill with being able to work with our thoughts, the lies that we tell ourselves, seeing through them, oh, yeah, they arise and they pass, they're impermanent. If I'm always a process, then if I can let this come and go, it's not such a big deal. It might be painful some. You grow, I grow in our capacity to be with things, whether they're comfortable or not comfortable. And that starts to incline us into equanimity. And so once you get that certain level of skill, you'll start to see that mindfulness practice and that sense of observer can be a sense of like sheltering from the storm. And you can learn to rest in that sense of observer and see the play of things. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is like, okay. And then what? Right? Jack, again, Buddhist psychology makes mental health simple for us to understand. The presence of healthy mental states creates a healthy mind. The presence of unhealthy states creates mental distress, unhappiness, and mental illness. This reflects a significant difference with much of Western psychology, which focuses primarily on residual contents of consciousness, on what we think about. Although this focus has given rise to many creative therapeutic approaches, it often leaves us, leaves us entangled in the never-ending production of thoughts and emotions. Here, Buddhist psychology takes a liberating turn, stepping back with mindfulness to investigate the play of mental states themselves, teaching us to release those states that bring sorrow and foster those that create joy. So here we can turn into loving kindness. Start to foster the states that bring us joy. And so part of what happened when I was working with this may a deep understanding of freedom arise, I went to Jack and had a one-on-one -on -one meeting and I was like, one, I was like, how could you do this to me? <laughs> right? How could you give me this phrase? And I was just like, this is just, oh my gosh, I see the clinging, I'm with the clinging, I'm trying to relax, and if you haven't noticed, if you try to relax too much, then you start to tense up and it doesn't work. And he just looked at me and smiled real big, and he's like, may equanimity arise. I said, what? <laughs> he said, may equanimity arise, try it. And I said, um, may equanimity arise? He's like, no, like you mean it. I'm like, all right, may equanimity arise. I'm like, it's not working. He's like, just, you can't make it happen. And boom, it was there. It was just like, boom. And I was like, oh, this is, this is magic. Oh my God, I just found the answer to everything. Every time I don't feel good, I can say, may equanimity arise, and then boom. He's like, well, you're not really through that cycle that you're in, but isn't it cool? That you can incline, you know, that it's always here. 
So it's like we learn to work with mindfulness and heartfulness. We learn, okay, yeah, in this moment, maybe I need to see really clearly what's happening. Maybe I need to deconstruct my experience so that I can put it into parts so I actually can see, right? Okay, you have buckets. You say, all right, breathing is like this, long, short, fast, slow, expansion, contraction. Okay, so next bucket, body, all right sensations, next bucket, feelings, ooh, okay, let me see if I can recognize, wow, investigate them, name them, this is rain, and then there's the thinking, all right, let me sense into the vibrations behind the thinking, maybe I can even get a clue what I'm feeling. Maybe that's my doorway into sensing my body. So you have to do it in order. You know, you can jump around with whatever the doorway in to being able to see. And once you see your patterns so many times and they just start to kind of be, what is this? Now, the the interesting thing is like, how many times have you seen a pattern in your experience? (laughs) And it just continues to happen, yeah? Like, I mean, pizza is not very good for me, and I know what I'm doing with it. And then sometimes I eat it anyway. (laughs) I can mindfully eat that pizza that's not so good for me. (laughs) We all do it, you know? We're not perfect. Perfection is an interesting thing all in itself, right? Why wouldn't I pick the fourth piece of pizza, right? It's like, what causes me to change? What causes me to break that loop? Heartfulness, right? Heartfulness comes in and says, oh, really? Do you want to do that next, you know? Maybe not. Maybe I do it anyway. I don't. Depends on the moment, right? But there's the choice. There's the self-authoring ability that we have, all right? Along with the spaciousness of loving awareness, in that moment, I see clearly, and I'm empowered to make the choice. Now, you never know necessarily what you'll do until you do it, but there's the choice. In some ways, I feel like this capacity to weave these two together, mindfulness and heartfulness, is what makes life workable right now. And it's with the heartfulness that usually our boundaries start to to grow, to to dissolve, to change, to become more and more and more and more universal in quality. And I feel like, you know, deeply, most of us long for that, to be able to sense into this loving awareness that's really universal, that connects us all. And we work with mindfulness to see clearly how we tell ourselves we don't have access to that or we can't handle it or it's not enough or we're not worthy or... And we toggle back and forth. Resting in that sense of observer 
bringing heartfulness to our experience and acting. It empowers change. So when we hold both, it can be a source of alleviation for some kinds of longing and loneliness. But I've noticed recently that when I ask this question, like, what are you longing for? I tend to get from my students and and the mindfulness teachers that I work with, the mindfulness teachers and training that I work with, this like, what what do you mean? What is what do you mean this longing? What what is what are you talking about? Uh, Tokopal Turner, she says, before we even ask ourselves how to heal our estrangement, we must first sink down into the wound itself and apprentice ourselves to it. We must enter into the question of what has been missing from us. Of what are we deprived? Only when we lower ourselves down into that holy longing can we glimpse the majesty that we are supposed to. So I'm really talking about that sense that you just like, there's a part of you that knows that there's something more and you just want to realize that. You know, and you have glimpses of it. All of you have glimpses of it. And sometimes those glimpses aren't recognized. And so part of this process is to learning to recognize them. Learning to recognize them. And if you sink yourself into, apprentice yourself to that longing, that discomfort, that total sense of like, oh, wait, I feel so separate right now, but I know there's something else. Right in there, it will bring you into this completeness. And that heart and mind becomes bodhicitta in the Buddhist tradition. Heart, mind, bodhicitta. They don't even separate it. Heart, mind, bodhicitta. So when we hold both wisdom and compassion together, these two wings, mindfulness, heartfulness practice. We also come up against the paradox of it. The paradox of opening into the universal and still living in this human body, in an individual, personal body, particular. There's some words people use. Body. And for a long time, my rational, logical, sensical mind just, you know, I've struggled for a while to make sense of it rationally and cognitively, and I'm not so sure it's possible. (laughs) I'm not so sure it's possible. I feel like we live into these questions like Rilke says. And and the way that we live into it, the paradox just starts to answer itself. My sense, though, is through that living into it, we come into this sense of living with a broken heart that I've talked about, where the joys and the sorrows have space. The joys and the sorrows, just like the two wings of the bird, they're here. All right. 
They're just And we go through our own process around accepting that. And acceptance, I'm not saying condoning behavior. That's that paradox that we learn and like lean into and and toggle with and just like, you know, sometimes get so frustrated. I know I've been so frustrated with it. So disappointed. Like, why is it like this? Yeah. Especially when you start to open and become sensitive and start to see clearly. No. Yeah. And that's the mind that goes into the sorrows. That's the heart that goes into the sorrows. And then you have the joys, you know. You have the beauty and you have the trees and the flowers and the river and those moments where, you know, you're connected with someone and you feel seen and the dancing and the festivals and whatever brings you that sense of life. You know, they're both life. It's just where do the preferences? Usually it's to the happy, right? Rid of this stuff. But through our mindfulness and heartfulness practice, we learn they coexist. And we can become self-authoring in how we choose to live with this. Tara Brock in Radical Acceptance, she says, the two wings of clear-seeing compassion are inseparable. Both are essential in liberating us from the trance of unworthiness. They work together, mutually reinforcing each other. If we are rejected by someone we love, the trance of unworthiness may ensnare us in obsessive thinking, blaming the one who hurt us, believing that we were jilted because we are defective. We may feel caught in a relentless swing between explosive anger and wrenching grief and shame. The two wings of radical acceptance free us from the swirling vortex of reaction. They help us find the balance and clarity that can guide us in choosing what we say or do. What we say or choosing what we say or do. And with heartfulness practice coupled with this clear seeing, what we say or do can take a variety of forms depending on the causes and conditions of the moment. Sometimes it's important to have boundaries. Sometimes it's important to say no. Sometimes it's important to take a stand, to speak out. And it's living in the stance between the universal and personal that, you know, sometimes there just can be a lot of confusion until it works itself out in your, in your experience, in your practice. It works itself out. 
Because as we open into the more universal, it's like, whoa, we're so interconnected that honestly, with intensive meta practice, it's like everyone is equal. Now, equal doesn't mean the same. <laughs> this is what I learned. David Loy, who's a Buddhist teacher, teaches Zen. He was sitting around my uh, kitchen table, and I just had Xander. And um, I was breastfeeding at the time, and he was getting ready to give a talk. And Vince was like, oh, I'll take you to the talk. And I'm like, well, I want to take him to the I want to go. But I'm breastfeeding with Xander, so I can't. Like, there's all these, comp you know, there's just causes and conditions. And I'm like, but it's not fair that I have to, you know, I was raised 80 feminist. I should be able to do everything. I can do it all. And David Loy looked at me and says, Emily, equal doesn't mean the same. And I was like, what? So I've been sitting with that for years, years. And yeah, I mean, Vince can't breastfeed Xander, you know, or couldn't. So I have something from Sharon Salzberg book, but it's quite long. Are you up for listening to it? All right. So just like let it land or not. Through the power of this practice, we cultivate an equality of loving feeling towards ourselves and all beings. There was a time in Burma when I was practicing metta intensive. I had taken about six weeks to go through all the different categories. Myself, benefactor, friend, neutral person, and enemy. After I had spent these six weeks doing the metta meditation all day long, my teacher, Yu Pandita, called me into his room and said, Say you are walking in the forest with your benefactor, your friend, your neutral person, and your enemy. Bandits came up and demand that you choose one person in your group to be sacrificed. Which one would you choose to die? I was shocked at you, Pandita's question. I sat there and looked deep into my heart, trying to find a basis from which I could choose. I saw that I could not feel any distinction between any of those people, including myself. Finally, I looked at you, Pandita, and replied, I couldn't choose. Everyone seems the same to me. You, Pandita, then asked, you wouldn't choose your enemy? I thought a minute and then answered, no, I couldn't. Finally, you, Pandita, asked me, don't you think you should be able to sacrifice yourself to save the others? He asked the question as if more than anything else in the world, he wanted me to say, yes, I'd sacrifice myself. A lot of conditioning rose up in me, an urge to please him, to be right, to win his approval. But there was no way I could honestly say yes. So I said, no, I can't see any difference between myself and any of the others. He simply nodded in response, and I left. Later, I was reading the Vasudhi Maga, one of the great commentarial works of the Buddhist literature, which describes different meditation techniques and the experiences of practicing these techniques. In the section on metta meditation, I came 
to that very question about the bandits. The answer I had given was indeed considered the correct one for intensive meditation, practice of metta. Of course, in different life situations, many different courses of action might be appropriate. But the point here is that metta does not mean that we denigrate ourselves in any situation in order to uphold other people's happiness. Authentic intimacy is not brought about by denying our own desire to be happy in unhappy difference to others, deference to others, nor by denying others in narcissistic deference to ourselves. Metta means equally oneness, wholeness. To truly walk the middle way of the Buddha, to avoid the extremes of addiction and self-hatred, we must walk in friendship with ourselves as well as all. So we live into this. <laughs> May it be so. May it be so. That we see ourselves just as important. Just as worthy as everyone. And yet, as she says, the causes and conditions, the circumstances require action. And those may take different forms. Because we live in a world today that requires us to act. And honestly, sitting here like this, this is a type of action. This is a type of resistance. This is a type of revolution. You're not going to stay on this cushion, bro. <laughs> You're going to do something in the world out there that's also here. How many times have you remembered the war in the Ukraine? The violence that's happening in the school. In America, in the United States of America. There's a lot going on, just like everywhere else in the world. I'll share a story, though, that happened recently for me in relationship to the violence that's happening in America. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the capacity that we have really does grow with this practice. And, and, I, and I find my edges just like you all. And, and it's like a lot of the people that I'm working with and, you know, I'm working with people that are in the war in Ukraine. And it's like we're all finding our new sense of edge. And sometimes we are like, I can't take any more. And then here comes something else, right? I mean, this is the way I feel like the last three years have been. It's like, I can't take anymore. Okay, here's something else. I can't take, okay, here's something else. And it's like, well, I guess I could take something. I guess I could take something, you know? And it's like, how do we grow? I don't know, you know? And and we can get pushed past our edges. And then how do we work with that when that happens? And And how do we, you know, really start to be aware of the signs that we're reaching our edge, you know? Um. And, you know, recently there was two major shootings that happened in America, like really close together within like a week apart, Buffalo um, and uh, New York and in Texas. And, and um, I had, and my family, we, all three of us got COVID and 
that was happening. And then the, the school shootings happened and my mom friends were texting me. And then I was like beyond my capacity and like, you know, and my practice, it, it was just right there. And what I found myself doing was knowing that I was going into the child's pose, you know, that pose that you cuddle, like you just kind of lay in the fetal position. That's where I went. I was just like on the screened in porch in the backyard, you know, just like in the fetal position, bawling, like so much just sorrow, like so sorrow. Like, how can we do this? And in that sorrow, there's also the birds chirping and the flowers blooming and the wind blowing and the remembering of loving awareness. And it's like, yeah, they both are so here. Yeah. But we can't. We got to have both. We can't say that. Both. And in that holding of both, there comes this sense of like, okay, what's mine? And then it's one step in front of another. And sometimes we don't really know very clearly like where we're headed or where we're going, especially in a time like this. And Sharon Salzberg says it's faith that keeps us putting that one foot in front of another. We don't know where we're going, but something just keeps us going. Faith. And as our practice grows and takes root, more and more and more, then it's easier. Doesn't mean it's necessarily less painful. It's just easier. There's not so much struggle with it. There's not so much looping in it. It's just there's sorrow and there's joys. And, you know, we ha- we definitely have these moments where it's like, really? Are you sure? <laughs> I got sick of, like several years ago and um, I have a chronic illness and it's manageable. And at the time, though, when it first was coming on, I lost all function of this arm. I was hospitalized. Xander was 18 months old, so I couldn't change diapers. I couldn't pick him up. And, oh, you know, it's like one of those things I could feel it in the room. It's like, oh, my God, you know, I don't wish that on anyone. But, yeah, it's like. It was happening, you know? It's like, okay. Um, Yes, it was painful. Yes, there was sadness. Yes, there was grief. Yes, there was I couldn't type. Um, But I could record messages, you know? I could have things transcribed. Thank goodness I could show up in front of a screen, you know? Um, My practice was just, I loved my life. I loved my life. And there were moments where all I could do was touch the wall. Ah, Jack. That's one of the things I learned from him. It's like to settle the nervous system. Ah. I remember just standing, touching wall. Ah. And that's what we do sometimes. That's what we steady. What is happening? Mindfulness. Let's see clearly. And with heart. Without the heart, it can get pretty.
I can get, um, I want to say clinical, but I don't know if that's quite the right word. It can get very, um, almost cutty. You can see so clearly. There's debates about this. You know, some teachers will say that compassion, you can't be mindful without heart. We'll just leave that as an open question. I feel like it takes some effort for both of those to arise, to come into this loving awareness. So what's mine to do? What's yours to do? As you deepen into this sense of freedom with heart, this sense that you can choose a life worth living. I'll close with this. Go to the limits of your longing. Roca, translated by Joanna Macy. Listen. God speaks to each of us as he makes us then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.